Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Lily Zhang. Lily Zhang is a no-nonsense diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, strategist, and consultant who specializes in creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces through hands-on systemic change. A dedicated change maker and advocate named a Forbes D&I Trailblazer, 2021 DEI Influencer, and LinkedIn Top Voice on Racial Equity, Lily's work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and NPR. They are the author of Reconstructing DEI, a practitioner's workbook, and DEI Deconstructed, your no-nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. Lily, welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I am super jazzed to be talking with you today. <laughs> so the first question we have for you is a little bit of an icebreaker. So if you could change professions, we heard this credentials, all the stuff that you've done, all the fantastic things, but if you could change professions for a day to anyone, which would you have and why? Mm, that's a good one. I actually just this week had the privilege to speak on a panel at a conference with a professional who I definitely admire. I believe her name is Cheryl Overton. She worked on a number of, of groundbreaking marketing and, you know, kind of culture making campaigns and, you know, has, has helped to like redefine the perception of beauty in America to include, you know, more real bodies and more real people. She's incredible. I would love to work a day in her life. I've been long curious about, you know, sort of culturally conscious marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, you know, I, maybe in another life, right? It could be really interesting. So I think there's so much there as someone who is making essentially, you know, what people see every day and the sort of content or the entertainment or even, you know, the, the commercials that they engage with day to day, like the folks doing that work are on the front lines of culture, I think. And, yeah. and it's, it's phenomenal work. So follow-up question. If you were in an ideal world, you had a fantastic day where you got to be in marketing, what would be your ideal product service that you would market? What would you oh, be most gosh. interested in? You gave some examples. Oh, I haven't thought about this at all. Mm. <laughs> I mean, ads are interesting, right? Like television, yeah. there's there's a lot there. This isn't marketing anymore, but like entertainment, I think is really interesting mm. as well, right? Like creating media, creating the shows, creating just stuff that people interact with day to day. That that would be super cool. Like I'd, I'd love to participate maybe not as a showrunner that's like too much responsibility but like i don't know maybe it's like a consultant or something on on some popular piece of media like that 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 really appeals to me right like ensuring that the content that like millions of people see every day around the world kind of embodies the values and the world that you know we deserve to live in right like a world that is diverse and behavior that's inclusive and like you know really making space for underheard stories and experiences that's that's super cool stuff so you heard it here everybody if you want a consultant to review your script <laughs> contact lily's <Zang. laughs> okay so 
Can you tell us a little bit more? We heard the bio, but can you tell us a little bit more about who is Lily Zhang? So if you were in these movies that you're talking about, this representation, and it was a biopic on you, what would be your origin story? And can you share with our listeners kind of what inspired you to get into the work that you're doing? An origin story. Okay. So like a lot of folks engaged in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, I have, you know, my own very personal experiences of not really feeling like I belonged and not really feeling like I was in spaces that were designed for me. And so my origin story comes from, I mean, it pretty much starts in high school, goes into college. I was, to my knowledge, the first out trans person at my high school at a time when, you know, I, I grew up in California, which is, is typically thought of as a pretty progressive state, but it wasn't there yet when, when I needed it to be. So, you know, I had a lot of really difficult, challenging, negative experiences growing up as a teenager. My family wasn't as supportive as I would have liked them to be. And, you know, continuing to grow up into a young adult, even in college, right? I, I didn't necessarily find spaces that were for me. As someone who, you know, had a really strong connection to my identities and a really strong belief that, you know, I deserve to thrive in the world the same as everyone else, right? Like I really started asking myself, like, why is it that the structures that the systems that I'm existing in are so awfully designed, right? Like, why is it that like, this isn't made for me? And how might I make it better? How might I and everyone else make these things better so that people don't have to go through what I went through? And I think that's really what started me on my path to learn more about social psychology, organizational psychology, organizational change, social change movements, organizational sociology. I, I really went in that direction of how can we create organizations and cultures and environments that can make space for everyone and that can support everyone. I also, as part of that experience, spent quite a bit of time doing student activism in college and, you know, really, really had some mixed experiences, kind of pushing against the man and and trying to change things by burning them all down, you know, it, it, I, I did the usual activist thing. And it was really, really instructional for me, right? Like I learned simultaneously the power of collective action and what happens when we come together. And I also learned that sometimes change is harder than just writing a strongly worded email or rallying, <laughs> right? on the steps of some building, right? Like change, change takes a while. Change is difficult. It takes many different people. It takes lots of different folks playing many different roles. And so I took all of that experience and what I learned in school, what I learned, you know, from activism into my career. And, you know, I've been doing this work for essentially a decade now, uh, really working to make organizations better and work with leaders from pretty much every industry around the world on how, they can turn their intention because usually they have some intention to make their organization somewhat better into a reality, right? And, and to push past all of the big thorny challenges, the fear, the reluctance, the resistance, yeah. the ignorance, right? Um, that prevents this valuable change from happening. And so I hear in your story, you're talking about your activism as a student and 
I hear that you learned, hey, there's some patience. Maybe there's some subtlety and nuance that has to happen. So the strongly worded email doesn't always work. But at the same time, you're known as the no-nonsense DEI speaker and strategist. So how do you balance those two things about and this is often a difficult transition. Many people, guests on our show say, hey, I started off in student activism. I started off in the social justice space. And I realize it overlaps quite a lot with diversity, equity, inclusion, but there's some things that don't. How do you balance the need for maybe diplomacy, maybe even to a certain extent, sometimes compromise to help people realize their intentions, mm -hmm. but at the same time being no nonsense? When do you know it's a time for patience and grace and when it's a time for maybe stronger, no nonsense? Hmm, that's such a good question. It's a really good one. So I, I would say there's a reason why I'm a consultant and not like an in-house DEI. <laughs> and it's specifically because I chose a role in a career yeah. that lets me be in my zone of excellence, right? I don't like playing politics. I don't like saying things that I know not to be true because they're what people need to hear at the time. That said, as a consultant, I'm in the you know very privileged position to be usually brought in because people need to hear something that they don't want to hear. Right. Like people expect consultants to push them. If they wanted to hire someone who just said yes at them, right, they would hire a direct report, not a consultant. You hire a consultant because something's broken and you need it fixed. And, you know, I've had the good luck to build a reputation for myself as someone who is no nonsense. And what that means for me is I tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. And sometimes, you know, I've, you know, I, I have so, so many stories, right? I've been in a room where a CEO who's, you know, really, really strong-willed and has surrounded himself with a team of people who mostly just want to say yes to him has in his frustration looked around the room and said, no one ever pushes back against anything I say. Can someone here just tell me I'm full of uh. And everyone around the room looked at him, terrified. And I raised my hand and I said, hey, you're full of <laughs> And he laughed. And he was like, finally, finally, right? Tell me how I'm full of And I'm like, oh, I'll tell you. And I listed the 20 things he was doing, right? That he shouldn't have been doing. And I could tell everyone around the room was mortified. Like right. they wouldn't have said that in a million years. Like they work for this guy. They don't want to lose their jobs. But my job is to tell people that they're full of and it's also to tell people when they're doing a good job that I think they're genuinely doing a good job and they don't need to sweat it, right? Like I, I see my role as a truth teller and sometimes the truth is hard. Sometimes the truth feels good. It's my job to give, you know, my unvarnished, you know, to the extent that I can objective third party opinion on just what's going wrong, what's going right and how organizations can make progress towards their goals. So I would say I do err on the side of being no nonsense where I can. That doesn't mean I'm never tactical. In fact, I, right. I spend a lot of time being tactical because no nonsense doesn't mean, you know, all I know how to do is to bulldoze myself into executives, right? Like there's always finesse with it. Sometimes, you know, you need to really think about how you present your message, at what time, at what place, to what person, in what way. And so long as what I do is able to achieve my goals, which is I get people to listen, I get people to pay attention, and more importantly, I get people to act, I consider all of it no nonsense, right? So if I spend five minutes massaging someone's ego before I tell them the hard feedback, 
I don't care, right? Like if it helps them take the hard feedback, I'm not compromising anything. I'm just being tactical about how I present my message. And so you mentioned kind of the difference between, and you even framed it in terms of privilege of consultants being able to be from the outside and tell hard truths that maybe people internally cannot. Mm-hmm. And also about you see your role as kind of delivering some uncomfortable truths so we can improve. And one of the most interesting that you've delivered lately is the surprising findings on chief diversity officers. Mm. It's a fantastic LinkedIn article that we will include here. So first of all, can you tell our listeners who might not know what CDOs or chief diversity officers are, and then also what your findings were about their role and areas of opportunity? For sure. So I'll start by defining CDOs. So a chief diversity officer is usually someone hired at the very senior level. They are usually given a C-suite title, hence chief. This is one of the problems. Their job description varies a lot. What you typically see is they are the primary advocate the the spearhead of diversity, equity, and inclusion work within an organization. They're there to push their fellow executives and to champion DEI at the executive level, minus all the pre-rhetoric. What that usually means is they organize DEI-related events. They usually head DEI-related trainings and learning and development opportunities. And they essentially interface with employee resource groups and DEI councils and serve as that seat on the C-suite level to advocate for folks. Now, the findings, which I will be very clear to say, they're not my findings. Um, I shared about them. They came out from the London Business School a few months ago. Essentially found that looking at the great places to work scores, the overall scores in the U.S., companies with chief diversity officers on average actually scored 10 points lower on average on diversity, equity, and inclusion-related scores compared to companies without CDOs, which was a hugely unintuitive finding. Now, before I dive into this finding, I also want to say there there has been other recent research published since that time, essentially showing the opposite result, showing that CDOs are actually, you know, associated with higher scores and better revenue and better management and these things. So I certainly don't want people to take away like, wow, this one study has suddenly proven that like all CDOs should be fired yesterday. That's never the takeaway from research like this. But when I made the post, I wanted to highlight that this research, I think, exposes a really common and pervasive shortcoming in how CDOs' roles are defined and how CDOs are utilized by organizations. And I suspect that your next question is asking me, like, well, Lily, like, why do you think this finding happened? So I'm just going to preempt you. (laughs) Thank you. I... (laughs) So what I speculate about and what the authors, frankly, of the research also speculate about is that CDOs are almost never given the power they need to do anything within most organizations. Yeah, They're hired time, as a resources, they don't have time, resources of, yeah. or authority is yeah. the main thing. You know, imagine CDOs like that. That is a cross-functional role. It should be a cross-functional role. Your job is to make the entire organization more diverse, more equitable and more inclusive. When sales has a problem, how is a CDO supposed to fix sales if they have no authority in sales? How is a CDO supposed to fix marketing or fix HR or fix product or fix engineering or fix operations? They have no authority there. 
So essentially, the CDO turns into a role with a very senior title, but just a you know glorified figurehead, right? Like a, I mean, they're essentially a consultant, but without the recognition that they're external, because all they can do is go to the head of sales and be like, "Can you please stop discriminating?" And the head of sales will, be, will say, "Oh yeah, you know, I'll think about it." Thanks. In your point, also you mentioned it was like they can also become the scapegoat. That's oftentimes the primary. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's that's one more thing. Though, though, I'll get there. The major challenge of CDOs is that when you bring a CDO into an organization, every other executive offloads their personal sense of responsibility for creating diversity, equity, inclusion onto that CDO. One example that I can give to illustrate this is: imagine if in your company you had a chief of emails. Their entire job is to make sure everyone sends out good emails. Do you think the quality of everyone's emails after bringing on this officer would go up or down? I have down. Up. <laughs> down. Because you would say, it's not my not job anymore. to yeah. write good emails, yeah. right? I can write garbage emails and so-and-so person will catch them and fix them for me, mm. right? It's taking away people's personal sense of responsibility. When, you know, what we know from the research is DEI is everyone's responsibility. When organizations succeed, they succeed because every leader has been able to say, DEI is my responsibility. I am personally and professionally obligated to ensure that my department, my team, my unit is embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so the act of bringing in a chief diversity officer can in fact interrupt this and make people think, oh, thank goodness, it's not my responsibility anymore. Now it's yours. So I'm not going to worry about my team. I'm not going to worry about my culture. I'm not going to worry about my people or my process or my incentives because that's your deal. But after offloading that responsibility, the new chief diversity officer has no power or authority to actually follow through on it being their responsibility, right? I've never seen a CDO with the power to go in and just arbitrarily change the policies and sales. I've never seen them go in and give orders or instructions to the head of marketing saying like, your culture is awful, you need to fix it. It just turns them into an advocate without power, right? And everyone else absolves themselves of responsibility. So that's the main reason why the authors, and I agree with them, speculate that these CDOs are associated with lower scores. And the final thing that you mentioned is when organizations fail and they don't have a CDO, whose fault is it? It's everyone's fault. But if they do have a CDO, then whose fault is it? Oh, it's absolutely the CDO's fault. Let's throw them under the bus, right? We never gave them the power to fix anything. But since they're the person with the title, we can say, oh, they're just bad at their job. They don't know what they're doing. We'll hire a new CDO. And so the cycle continues. There's a reason why the turnover for CDOs is something like six months, right? Like it's absolutely nuts. There is no other C-suite role with turnover that egregious. And it's because CDOs are in this revolving door of hope and powerlessness and then scapegoating and then exit. And then a new CDO comes and then hope and then powerlessness and then scapegoating, right? And it just goes on forever. I imagine a majority of our listeners aren't in that C-suite. So they wouldn't necessarily have, hey, let me, I hear what Lou is saying, I will take it as my personal responsibility to be more involved and take on a lot of the things that the CDO would do. A lot of them tend to be entry level, maybe individual contributors. What that message of 
incorporating it into the work that we all do, seeing it as all of our responsibility. Imagine a person who starts like they've only been at their position for three weeks, entry level. What kind of personal responsibility would you say even they, all of us have so that we're not offloading? Oh, VI, yeah, that's just for the CDO. But even at that kind of individual contributor level, what kinds of things do you see help an organization most impactfully where there's a shared responsibility, even at that level? Right. So you're essentially asking me, what can I tell junior level employees to do to help them, you know, get a sense of responsibility for DEI work? Right. So I would say, so it's a good question. I think, you know, definitely junior employees can't do as much as senior C-suite folks. They don't have as much power. But what I hear often from junior level folks is, I have no power. I have no access. I have no influence. And I don't think that that's quite correct because every single employee, even if you are junior, you have some limited influence over something. If you can create your own email signature, you have some sort of power. If you can decide what goes on your desk, you have some sort of power. If you've ever run a meeting or you, or if you've ever presented in a meeting, you have some sort of power. And so what you need to do is to recognize the, albeit maybe small opportunities you have to influence your team, your colleagues, your workplace, the work itself in a way that is safe, in a way that is sustainable for you, and then say, okay, now that I've recognized these opportunities, where does diversity, equity, and inclusion, or, you know, it's opposites, right? Um, homogeneity, inequity, and exclusion, where does that show up in my work? Where do I see these challenges? And what little thing can I tweak to change that? So for example, if my department has a culture where people are I don't know, really cutthroat and, you know, work too fast, right? Haste is sort of the name of the game and everyone's breaking things and moving too fast. What can I do, even with it, if it's just with one other person to slow things down in our interpersonal relationship and practice, you know, taking our time, making good decisions, not just fast ones, considering many people and how our decisions or our behavior affects them instead of just thinking about ourselves even if I can create that with one other person, by the way, that's that's called microculture, creating a culture between just one other person. That's something. And then can we do that with three people or maybe even a whole team? Even if our entire department is a dumpster fire, right? Can we create a little eye of the storm in that where our team at least interacts with each other respectfully? Everyone has the power to at least start to initiate things like that. And I think that's where your responsibility lies as someone who is junior. And the higher up you go, you know, the more access you have, the more resources you have, the more opportunity you have to create more of those spaces and to push back on more policies. So your responsibility will go up. But even at the most junior level, there is something you can do. Thank you. That's a fantastic reminder to all of us out there. And I have a question that's kind of splitting hairs a little bit. So, and it's something that I'm struggling with on my own too. So I, I'm really looking forward to your advice and answer. You mentioned kind of like focusing on that micro culture. Is there a moment sometimes when the micro gets too micro and it goes into, and you even mentioned the interpersonal because yeah. sometimes a standard ploy that we can get, we can fall into is that we avoid dealing with the intercultural and the intergroup that can be complicated and confusing and intimidating by going even narrower and be like, well, it's just individuals and it's just interpersonal. It's just one-on-one. -on -one. 
do you see it an issue? Is it an issue? Is it a problem of the micro culture of inclusion getting so micro that it's just individuals being nice to each other, being polite, being kind, and maybe not in that middle range where it's about Give me an example. I don't have to talk about race, gender, sexual orientation. I treat everyone the same. I just see people. And that might be where someone's at in their journey and where they need to start. But how might be some actions that separate? You're treating everybody the same. You're just being nice. You're being kind. But you need to recognize the ways in which different cultures, different groups have maybe different aspects of respect. I don't care what a person's gender is. Yep. But pronouns are important. How do you get that? I'm I'm struggling with it so much. I don't know if I'm asking the question well. (laughs) Yeah. So what I'm hearing is when people sort of take a, take an identity denying approach, right. right? Or we call them, you know, colorblind or race blind also, right? Approaches. But that's not manifesting in their actual behaviors. You know, it's actually funny you mentioned that. There's research that's been done for like 20 or 30 years looking to see if so-called colorblind approaches actually solve anything. And it turns out the only consequence from using so-called colorblind rhetoric is you don't actually act any better towards marginalized folks. You actually just act just as discriminatorily, but you're less able to identify inequity when it happens. So it essentially just kind of protects people from seeing that there are problems, which is very funny because (laughs) because they don't see race, right? They literally can't see racism. And it lets them tell themselves that, you know, we're living in a post-racial society, which is absolutely false. So, you know, your question is like, what do you do with people like that, right? I think it's really focused on how their stated commitment to not seeing race is not actually manifesting in their behavior. You say you are treating everyone equally. You're not, right? Like, (laughs) like this is, these are some people and let's say the white folks on your team feel really included and they feel good. That's great. Good job. The people of color on your team do not feel supported by you. They don't feel respected by you. And then the question they'll ask is, well, I don't want to make people feel disrespected. Why don't they feel respected by me? And then the answer is because you're not seeing their race. Like if you want people to feel respected by you, you have to see their race. And then the question is like, well, that goes against everything I was taught. It's like, well, too bad, right? You want to make people feel respected. People are telling you what they need to feel respected. You have to acknowledge them, right? There's a trans person on your team. You want to treat them like every other person. Well, ask the trans person, do they feel respected by you? And if their answer is no, ask them why. And if the answer to that is, well, you keep not using my pronouns, right? Then use their pronouns. Like, it's a very simple question. We can't just, just lock ourselves in this rhetoric of like, what do you intend to do? Because everyone intends to be a good person. Most people do, at least. We need to instead ask, how are you succeeding or not in making the people around you feel the way you want them to feel? And that's a universal, easy question. And sometimes if you ask that question, everyone around you says, oh, no, yeah, you're doing a great job. You don't have to change anything. And then, great, you're fine. And then sometimes people around you will say, yeah, no, this this isn't working. I don't feel respected by you. I don't feel like you care about me. And then if that's the feedback you get, it's on you, regardless of your intent, to pause and say, well, I'm so sorry. That's not what I'm going for. How do I make you feel respected? And to do whatever people tell you is the answer, right? Like, it's that simple. It's the it's the platinum rule, right? Instead of treating people how you want to be treated, treat people how they want to be treated. That's it. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. So I'd like to have my last question be a, a little bit about your books. And I know it's kind of unfair having the last question <laughs> towards the end be like, hey, can you, in one question, talk about two enormous projects that you've worked on for a long, very long time? So forgive me for that. But can you tell our audience a little bit about Reconstructing DEI, a practitioner's workbook? And also DEI Deconstructed, your no-nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. Yeah, I'll start with DEI Deconstructed first. It's the, it's the book right in front of me, uh, or right behind me, rather. This book is the sort of crystallization of my approach. No-nonsense, pragmatic, nuanced approach that focuses on outcomes first. Just to give the elevator pitch, the main idea of the book is that we cannot situate our DEI work on good intentions. We need to be rooting our work in whether we succeed or not in creating the outcomes that we want. So if we want a more equitable workforce, it doesn't matter how much we try, it doesn't matter how much we commit to it, it doesn't matter what we say, we've either made progress towards equity or not. And if we haven't, we need to do better. If we have, then we can celebrate. It's a reframing of this entire field because too much of DEI work I think is admiring the problem is what I call it, right? Like saying like, wow, racism is bad. Wow, sexism is, is bad, right? Like let's let's bring in another speaker to talk about just how bad racism is. Wow, that's so awful. Anyways, next month, we'll be bringing in another speaker to tell us just how bad racism is. Wow. It's so awful. And then the question is like, are we are we doing something about it? Are we fixing right. it? Are we changing things? Or are we just stuck in this space where we're just, saying, wow, this sucks. This is awful. And so this book is, you know, encapsulating everything that I do in my own practice and that I work with organizations to do to fix systems, to change culture, to teach leaders how to show up in the way that they need to, to develop DEI strategies, to use metrics, to be accountable in this work and so on and so forth. So this book is kind of the primary resource, the new one, Reconstructing DEI, which is coming out November 14th, so very soon now, is the sort of companion guide and sequel to DEI Deconstructed. It contains 40 unique exercises that I've developed throughout the course of my career doing this work. I'm essentially giving away all my trade secrets. This is everything I do with my clients, and I'm giving it to people because I think this is the basics of what people need to be able to do. So you'll learn to create direct and proxy metrics. You'll learn to create a theory of change. You'll learn emotional intelligence. You'll learn boundary setting. You'll learn self-compassion. You'll learn DEI strategy, DEI coalition building, change management, management management, all sorts of stuff. This is essentially the book that I wish I had when I started the field where I asked myself, you know, like, Everyone's calling themselves a DEI practitioner, so I can just call myself that, but how do I become a good one? Like, how do I actually know that when I call myself this thing, I'm actually able to do it? And this book is the answer, right? Like, I genuinely believe I can take anyone at any level of understanding and turn them into at least a halfway decent practitioner just by reading the book, because it's all the skills that I've spent, you know, a decade building that I wish someone had some time to teach to me when I was just starting. I think that ties nicely back to even your origin story about saying like, hey, I want to advocate for a space that I wish I had when I was back then. So thank you for continuing that work, even with your newest work and giving us knowledge that you wish you would have had. So fantastic. So how can our listeners continue to get in touch with you and continue to learn with you, Billy? 
Well, LinkedIn's probably the best way. I post prolifically there. So feel free to follow me on LinkedIn, Lily Zhang. You can't miss me. And that's pretty much the place. If you want to get in touch with me, if you'd like to work together, you can reach out to me at lilyzhang.co, my website. You can learn more about my work. And of course, feel free to support my books. Uh, you can find them anywhere books are sold. And that's honestly, like the book is basically me. Like if you read the whole book, like you basically know who I am as a person. So that's, that's not a bad way. If you like parasocial relationships, right? You can also... You're, you're very much welcome to read all the content that I put out into the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the invitation and all of you out there, please make sure to pick up Reconstructing DEI, a practitioner's workbook, and then also DEI Deconstructed, your nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. Lily Zhang, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you to all of you out there listening to this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact Podcast. We need more people like you to uplift the impact. In order to do so, please be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.